Thanks for tuning in to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. This is your host, Patty Murphy. I'm excited to introduce you to our guest in this episode, who, when faced with a career-halting injury, used the challenge as an opportunity to hone his skills in a way that ultimately helped the Chicago Cubs break the curse of the Billy Goat and capture the World Series in 2016. Keep in mind, this episode was recorded in April 2020, as the COVID-19 outbreak was just beginning to de-escalate in New York City. Kyle Schwarber played baseball for Indiana University, where he was an All-American for the Hoosiers. During the summer, he played for the Wareham Gateman of the Cape Cod Baseball League. Kyle was drafted by the Chicago Cubs in the first round of the 2014 Major League Baseball Draft. He signed on June 11th and made his professional debut with the Boise Hawks just three days later, going three for four with a home run and three RBIs. In his first year of professional baseball, Kyle played several levels of Class A ball as well as Double A. The Cubs promoted Kyle to the major leagues in June of 2015 after having played just one year in the Cubs minor league system. Kyle finished his rookie season having played 69 games batting 246, 16 home runs, 52 runs scored, and 43 RBIs in just 273 plate appearances. At just 22 years old, Kyle hit several epic home runs for the Cubs in the 2015 National League playoffs. The Cubs and Kyle entered the 2016 season with high hopes, though Kyle's season certainly didn't go as planned. Last season, Kyle hit 38 home runs and 92 RBIs while batting 250. In addition to being a World Series champion slugger for the Cubs, Kyle is a leader in the community where he is incredibly passionate about supporting first responders with his charity, Schwarber's Neighborhood Heroes. The campaign is designed to recognize first responders by honoring their heroism, courage, and devotion to duty. All right, Kyle, thank you so much for speaking with me today. No problem. Thank you guys for having me. I'm really excited about this. And I, again, have to acknowledge for anybody tuning into this episode, the reason why you and I are both calling in today is because we are in the midst of the COVID-19 outbreak here in New York City, and I cannot make it to the studio to record, so fortunately, we're able to do this virtually. So thank you for speaking to me over the phone. Oh, yeah, really excited. Uh, you know, hopefully this all passes and we can all get back to doing what we love soon. Yes, absolutely. And I do want to talk to you about that a little bit more later in the episode. But for now, I'd like to start the conversation by learning more about your upbringing. What was your childhood like? And was it centered around you always dreaming of one day being a big league baseball player? So, you know, it's funny. Growing up, you know, Kind of a, a regular household, three older sisters. I was the youngest and uh, came from a family of athletes. My dad was a uh, soccer player in high school and actually went to University of Dayton to uh, be a place kicker. Made it all the way to the Giants tryouts, but uh, got cut and uh, he moved on and became a, a, a policeman. And my mom was a softball player in high school. The two oldest sisters were basketball players. One went to college at Wittenberg University and played basketball. And my sister that's closest to me uh, in age, she's a equestrian. So she would ride horses for competition. And, uh, you know, I always grew up around competition. And uh, I knew that I, I had a, just a love for baseball. Growing up, you know, I played all different kinds of sports, but mostly focused on baseball. It was, you know, baseball, soccer, basketball. And then kind of once I got into high school, grew up going into football, you know, learned a lot of qualities through different sport. But growing up, going and practicing on fields with my parents and having my, my dad throw to me and my mom shagging baseballs with the dog with my sister, Lindsay, you know, this, those were the memories I had just being in the backyard, going to my dad, he'd be up against the, the shed as a catcher and I'd be pitching her. Uh, we, we'd hit a, into a net or going out to the football field, like I said, and him throwing me batting practice. Those were kind of the, the dreams. And, you know, I remember playing first base and T-ball with my hat backwards, <laughs> hit with a wood bat trying to be King Griffey Jr. So, you know, those were those were the days that, you know, I, I really knew I wanted to be a baseball player. That paints a very vivid picture and also sounds a lot like character building 
especially the part about three sisters. I have three sisters, so I appreciate that. And you're mentioning, you know, being a, a multi-sport athlete, you know, how do you think playing multiple sports influenced you? Man, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm a big believer in playing as many sports as you can growing up. You know, I feel like focusing on one sport, you know, obviously it's worked out for people, but for me, through my personal experience is just being able to play all these different sports and figure out, you know, different movements, different uh, mindsets. I, I mean, I can speak to you through, you know, basketball, just being able to move up and down the court, play defense, moving your feet around, playing football. You know, I think that was more of a, men, a mentality for me. You know, obviously there's athletic ability, but, uh, you know, I learned a lot about kind of getting punched in the face and having to respond. That guy, you know, you hit him and he gets the extra two yards to get that first down to put him first and goal. And, you know, you got to get back up and you got to put, put a goal line stand down and kind of learn that grit, that toughness through football. And obviously in, in baseball, you know, just playing it throughout the years, knowing that <laughs> it's a roller coaster and you have to be able to be mentally there to play the sport. You know, I, I believe all of ourselves are at the highest level for a reason we all have the talent but where people separate themselves is mentally and being able to handle uh the the ups of being you know being 500 for the week and then the next week you're over over 15 and you, you got to be able to to stay that same person and be a great teammate and not let everything else affect you on the field and when you go back home to, to your family Right. So, you know, fast forwarding on the timeline, you mentioned the big league. So you were a big league rookie in 2015 after having played just one year in the minor league system. What was it like to be a rookie on a major league club? <laughs> it was, uh, I remember when I got called up, I was actually in double A. I think we were in Jacksonville, Florida, and I get called up and they tell me, hey, you're going to be up for five days and then you're going to go back down to triple A. And uh, I'm like, okay. So, I mean, I can remember I have all these different thoughts rushing through my head. Like, okay, who's going to pack my stuff in, in Tennessee and ship it to Iowa? And what's going to happen when I get there? You know, how are people going to invite me? You know, and once I got up to that clubhouse in Chicago, so I flew into Chicago. We had a, a night game against Cleveland, and then we were flying out that night to go play Cleveland for two more in uh, their city. And uh, then we were going to Minnesota. And everyone welcomed me with open arms. And, you know, that was kind of the biggest fear there was how you're going to be accepted in the clubhouse. And, you know, are you going to fit in? Because, you know, I, I luckily I got, I was in big league camp and spring training and I got to know some of these guys, but, you know, luckily we had some really good veteran leadership in that clubhouse with David Ross, Dexter Fowler, John Lester, and a lot of people like that, that were able to take younger guys under wings and kind of show them, you know, this is what it's like to be a big leaguer, and this is what you do to prepare for these games, and this is how you handle yourself off the field and things like that. So it was a lot of nerves, but I remember I got my first at bat that night, and you know they told me like, hey, you're just gonna kind of sit here watch the game, and you're gonna be the DH tomorrow in Cleveland, and uh, the next five games. So I'm just sitting there watching the game, taking it in, trying to learned all the, the catching reports because I was a catcher at the time. And then all of a sudden our catcher gets thrown out in the eighth inning and we were getting our butts kicked. And they're like, Forbes, you're in there. Uh, you got to go catch tonight, top of the ninth. Then you're going to be leading off the bottom of the ninth. So I'm, I'm panicking. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing. I got this guy coming in and we give up a couple runs. So then my head's rolling. I mean, the score is already like 12 to 1, but I'm already in my mind. I'm like, man, I already screwed up. And then I go up to my, my bat. And uh, I'm like, man, I'm going to take the first pitch here. I'm just going to take it, see one. And I'm facing this left-hander, uh, Martin Chimsky. And uh, he was he was a lefty specialist for a long time. Throws me a fastball right down the middle. I take it. I'm like, okay, I saw one. Now I'm ready to go. Uh, throws me a slider. I thought it was a fastball. I missed it by about five feet. And uh, then he threw a fastball down and away. And I took it straight three year out. And it was the quickest bat of my life. And uh, all Wrigley was standing up for that bat. And then as soon as that strike three uh, was called, 
everyone calmed down and I think left the stadium because they were ready to go home. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it was a, it was a, I mean, it's a, it's a day I never forget. But going out through the rest of that season, you know, you, you just go about your business and you want to gain the respect of your uh, your teammates. And the way that I wanted to do that was just go out there, work as hard as I can every day and uh, leave it all up there on the field. And if I was going to make a mistake, you know, it wasn't going to be a pass mistake. It was always going to be an aggressive mistake because, you know, what, if I go out there, I'm giving 120 percent. I'm going to say no one can question my effort on the field. Thanks for sharing your memory of that time. And it does sound like, you know, your upbringing and your experience playing multiple sports carried over to that time. And I'm wondering, you know, overall, was becoming a major league baseball player exactly like you anticipated it would be or was anything different? I I didn't know what to expect with the travel and the daily operations of this is what it takes to play a major league baseball game. Because when I first came up, I was a catcher and, you know, going through the minor leagues and even to the college ranks, you know, you just show up, you hit batting practice, you talk to the pitcher for a little bit about, you know, what they think they're going to have. Then you, they throw their bullpen, you know, you, you kind of figure out what they have that day. But, you know, once you get to the big leagues, it's this whole other side of, you know what, you got to strategize against each and every hitter, you know, it, you're, you you got to remember this report in your head on how to get this guy out, and it's different for every hitter. And the game, the game plan for one through nine, they also game plan for the guys who are on the bench who are possibly going to be pinch hitters that come in for the pitcher. So you have to remember a lot of information. You know, on the hitting side as well, I, I mean, me personally, I would just watch a couple videos on the starter in the minor leagues and and, you know, even in college, you didn't even have any video. And once you get to the big league, you got all this information on, you know, this guy throws this fastball 42% of the time in this count. You know, if he's ahead of the count, he likes to change up more than he does a slider or something like that. You want to take in as much information as you can, but also information can be, it can be good for people. It can be bad for people. And, uh, you know, you want to be able to try to take in as much as you can. So there's a learning curve that I had to do with all this information that I was getting and try to turn it into my own. And I think that was kind of the biggest shock to me because once you get on the field, it's still the same game. Pitcher six feet, six inches away. I'm still catching a fastball, blocking sliders in the dirt. And when I was out in left field, you know, you're still catching fly balls. You know, it's no different than what you've done your whole life, except everyone's at a very high level of play. But you're there for a reason, like I said. Now it's time to hone in on the mental side and make everything your own. Awesome. You just unpacked a a little bit about the mental side of the game, and I want to discuss that further. But before we get to that, Kyle, on April 7th, 2016, you were playing left field for the Cubs in a game against the Arizona Diamondbacks. And in the second inning, you collided with center fielder Dexter Fowler, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with this story, but for those who are not, do you mind revisiting that? Oh, yeah, no problem. I mean, we're it was third game of the year. It's 2016. We just came off a 15 season where came off a pretty good season there. I just got caught up now going into my first full season and really excited. I know, you know all the talent that we just brought in. We just brought in Jason Hayward, John Lackey, you know, some, some other key pieces there. And uh, I'm like, man, you know what? This team's really got a, a special thing going on here. And third game of the year, I'm out in left field and Blackie's pitching and uh, Gene Segura is up at the plate, gets into like a 3-1 count and uh, hit the ball in the left center field gap. And Chase Field has got is a really big part. The dimensions are very big. It's a big outfield. And Dex just kind of playing shaded over towards right center. I'm in the left and he smokes this ball and I take off running after it. And I'm looking, I just kind of bury my head and I look up again I'm like oh man I really got a shot to catch this ball and no one said anything because as an outfielder we're taught to call the ball if we have it if it's 100% mm-hmm. fact that we have it so I just kept running after the ball I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to get there and I remember extending up my arm to try to reach for the ball and then all of a sudden I just felt someone uplift me from, from the ground I mean I, I took a big flip and laid on my back and all I could think of, where's the ball at? And I'm like, man, it, it hurt. The shock was in play. And, 
I'm like looking for the ball and I try to reach for the ball as it rolls by me and I missed it. And then all of a sudden, like my ankle just was, it felt like someone was stabbing me in my ankle. So, uh, play gets over, he hits inside the park home run. I was amazed that Dexter wasn't hurt because he dove right in me full speed. And he's over there checking on me, and he's like, "What hurts?" I'm like, "My ankle, my ankle, my ankle." So the training staff, everyone runs out. They're they're testing me. They're they're trying to see anything about my ankle. They're like, "All right, your ankle hurts, but what about your knee?" And I'm like, "Not really. My knee's fine. I'm, I can move it. It's just a little sore, but my ankle's on fire." So they're taking me out of the game. They cart me off the field. We go back into the X-ray room. They X-ray my ankle with the Arizona team doctors in there, and it came back negative. It's just a high sprain. I was like, "Well, that's good." And then they're like, you said the knee was sore, right? They're like, I was like, yeah, it's a little bit sore. So they did all the testing that they do is for stability of the ligaments. And they're like, yeah, we need to set up a MRI to your knee. I'm like, really? Yeah, I'm like, is it bad? They're like, mm, you know, they didn't want to tell me. You know, they're like, it's not good. Mm-hmm. So um, that next day, I had an MRI. And I remember going to the hotel that night. And my knee looked the same a little bit. It was a little bit swollen but not too bad. And I woke up the next morning and it swelled up like a balloon. And I was like, man, this isn't good. You know, I, I think that <laughs> I definitely might have torn my ACL. And then I go into the MRI machine. They get the results back. They tell me that I tore my ACL and my LCL and my meniscus as well. So obviously a downtime because my season, they told me, hey, your season is going to be done. You know, I, I was upset because, like I said, I knew this was a special team. But then I knew that I had a long run ahead of me, and it was time to look for someone who was going to do the surgery and trying to find someone who could do a, a multi-ligament surgery. And uh, we ended up with the Dallas Cowboys team doctor who actually, he had a similar case with one of their draftees that same year who tore his ACL and his LCL. And he actually had a drop foot with his, and I didn't. So we were able to choose him, and we got it done, and it was go time from there. I can imagine that your rehabilitation for your injuries was pretty intense. So what did your physical rehab actually entail? Oh, (laughs) this is, like, like the one, like, painful thing, like, I mean, you know what, like, I can rewatch the injury all the time, but then just think about the rehab, it was like, man, you know what, that was the biggest pain in the butt in the world. Very Because, cool. you know, the, the first thing, you know, because usually a typical ACL tear, you're on crutches for a couple of days and you're walking again, but since I tore that, the LCL with it, I was on crutches for six weeks. And the first thing that they wanted to start doing was let it heal, but you also want to try to get range of motion back. And once you take that brace off, after six weeks and it's been this locked in a straight position, <laughs> it's not fun to try to get your leg to come back. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's so much atrophy, there's so much muscle loss. And they, they took my hamstring from it too, to actually make my uh, ACL and repair my LCL. So my hamstring was weak as well. So the first thing they do is you take a belt, you put it around your, your leg pretty much. And you sit on a table and you just try to pull it back as far as you can until you the pain too much you know you do that for 30 minutes a day and it was the most growing part of my day just trying to sit there and pull my leg back as far as I can trying to break up all this all the scar tissue trying to get it back to full range I mean it was probably some of the worst pain I've ever experienced I just knew you just had to take it a day at a time and you know I mean there was thousands of step-ups that I had to do uh, once I finally got the range back, you know, I felt like I was starting to get range of motion back, but they still wouldn't let you walk on it. You still had to take little baby steps. It was kind of like learning how to do this all over again from what you already knew how to do. You know, you're going in the pool and they we ha- had an underwater treadmill and that's how you first started to walk again. Then finally, after the six weeks was up, I was able to start walking. Then you're starting to do a little bit of underwater treadmill jogging, you know, very light, very light buoyancy. And like I said, thousands of step-ups, those were the growing parts of the day. And, you know, trust me, it wasn't all fun and happy days. And I'm blessed because we just renovated our clubhouse. And, you know, if we didn't renovate our clubhouse, I would have been down in Arizona rehabbing, waking up, you know, early. And uh, my day would be done by 11 o'clock. And I wouldn't know what to do with myself until I go to sleep. But, you know, luckily we renovated a clubhouse where, there was so much space now that I was able to do my rehab there whenever the team was home and I was able to 
sit and watch the games from inside a video room until I could actually start walking. And then I made my way out to the dugout, and, but I never traveled with the team because I didn't want to feel like I was getting in anyone's way. You know, I knew these guys were on a mission. You know, I had such great support staff with, uh, obviously, my wife now. She actually quit her job and uh, was able to uh, come up and take care of me. You, know, you, you realize when you can't walk, you can't do things like you, know, you can't go to the bathroom by yourself you get help going in the shower. And, uh, you know, my parents would come up, my sisters would come up and, and, you know, that would be like rotations of people always coming up and, and trying to help me out as much as I can. And so that the six weeks were up and then, um, Matt Johnson, who was our, our trainer, he helped me out so much because I was pretty much his priority. Whenever the team would travel, he would stay back with me. I'd have to go to ATI clinic and uh, I'd actually go meet, guy named uh, Nate Whitney. He's actually the PT now for the Cubs, but he would help me through that. But uh, also the head PT at the time was Ryan Mertz, who was a superstar doing that as well, helping me and taking my bad comments towards him because I was mad at the time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just making sure I got all the work in I needed to every day. You know, everyone always asks what I did. I'm like, you know what? I just, just did what they told me. You know, I, I mean, I just put my head down and I'm like, okay, I got to knock this day out today. You know, it's not like I did anything special. I just wanted to go into the day knowing that I got my work in and now I'm going to be there for my teammates. That's excellent. And I was actually just going to ask, you know, you mentioned the team's mission, but also the fact that you knew every day you had this painful, grueling rehab that you had to go through and Sometimes the anticipation is actually worse than the actual act. But how did you process your rehab mentally? Like, what was your mindset in order to help you return to the game? Like I said, it was just more of an everyday basis. You know, there was days that I was pissed off because I felt like I wasn't progressing in anything. You know, there was days that were great that, you know, you feel great after the rehab session. You feel like that. You just, you took a big step forward and you're ready to go do more but then that next week you do the same thing over again because you can't progress. Those were the frustrating times, you know, just knowing that I had the team support, knowing that, you know what, I would, I would want to get in there beforehand and not get in anyone's way. And then I, I was able to talk to my teammates and, you know, they were a big support system for me too, pushing me through this, checking in on me. And, you know, and it was special just to be able to sit there and watch these guys go day in and day out and accomplish what they did during that season. They motivated motivated me to try to get back as soon as I can because, you know what, there was a little glimpse of hope at the end of the tunnel. I wanted to try to be there for it. You've talked about the greater appreciation and understanding of the mental side of the game that you gained during this rehabilitation period. So can you talk more about that now, what exactly you worked on and what you learned? Yeah, you know, I, I think the the big thing on the mentality side from working back from that injury was, you know what, like, it was a big punch in the face. Like, I just came off a pretty good 2015. That was my rookie year. Then going into 16, going into my technically my first full season, you know, I, I had expectations on myself, and I had expectations of what I was going to do and try to help for this team. And then you get punched in the face, and you have to – get back up and work your butt off to get back to your mindset because you know what I, I didn't want to feel sorry for myself at the time I felt sorry for myself for a day then I knew I was on a mission to climb back up to where I was I think the other biggest thing too is what I took away was the support system knowing that you're not there doing it yourself you know, because sometimes you can you can feel like you're just there doing it by yourself but in reality that there's you got your family you got your teammates and you got millions of other people fans that are there behind you too that that want you to, to get better you know i think i took a great appreciation knowing that mentally that it wasn't all just me that there was all these other forces pushing me forward to help me get to my end goal sounds like you really were dedicated to coming back and i know that part of your experience in that was really studying the game and the human performance side. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. I felt like for me too, during that time, a way for me to stay engaged because I wanted to 
I wanted to stay engaged in the game. I didn't just want to let my brain rot and do nothing. I wanted to try to do as much as I can and stay mentally sharp on the game. So what I would try to do is I would try to do reports for the opposing team hitters. So it was writing up the report for the pitcher. And we had a system that we had that you would try to break down all these little green dots, red dots, things like that. And it would give you averages, home runs, their slugging percentage, their ground ball percentage, things like that. And you try to put all this information in the words for someone to understand. That's what I wanted to do. So I literally spent, you know, whenever I get done with rehab and that team was playing, say, Cincinnati, but they were going into Milwaukee next, I would be focusing on Milwaukee, on their hitters, and trying to embrace all the information on the screen and put it in the words. And I would send it to the guy who would be doing the same thing, Mike Borzello and Tommy Hottaby. I would send it to them, and they would kind of compare and contrast with my report, and they would combine these three reports to get to our pitcher. So that was a big thing for me mentally to uh, stay in the game. And just kind of on the humor performance side of it, trying to take in as much as I could on – learning mindsets of my teammates. You know, I, I think that was the biggest thing. Since I couldn't be there playing, I want to ask questions. I want to ask, hey, after that bat was done, the next inning, whenever they come back in, what were you looking for here? What was your mindset against this guy in this certain situation? You know, if there's a guy on second base, nobody out, are you trying to look middle in to get him over? Are you looking out over to drive them in? Whatever it is. I felt like the more questions I could ask my teammates and all these guys who have been in the league for so long about what they've done throughout their career to keep bothering themselves, it was only going to help me. I want to fast forward and talk about in October of 2016, I'm going to set the stage here, and then I would like for you to give your perspective again, because a lot of us are familiar with these scenes, but hearing your perspective is really great. So it's October of 2016, and the Cubs are in the World Series against the Cleveland Indians. You haven't played with the team since April 8th of that year when you were seriously injured. What happens? (laughs) Okay, so this could take some time, but uh, it's a pretty interesting story. So pretty much when I got hurt, they were saying the timetable to return was next spring training. So for the first two months, I would take a monthly visit to Dallas to go see the doctor. Then it would be a bi-monthly visit to the doctor in Dallas. So then after that second month checkup, it was, okay, well, maybe we can push for possibly winter ball. So that was kind of the goal. Now, that's, that's what my mind was looking forward to. I was just trying to push as hard as I can, hard as I can, hard as I can. Then all of a sudden, we're in the playoffs. The team won the division. They had a, over a 100-game one season. I mean, unbelievable job by the team. And we go into the first round in the divisional series, and we play the Giants. What a lot of people don't think about during that series against the Giants was – this was a critical game four. You know, we were up two games to one out of a five-game series, you know. And we're facing Matt Moore, who had a great season, was pitching really well at the time. And if we lost this game, we would have to go back home to Wrigley. They were going to have Johnny Cueto, who's still nasty. And then behind him was Madison Bumgarner going to be coming out of the bullpen. You know, we knew at that point that we needed to win this game now. So we go out there, we fall behind, and then here comes the ninth inning. I think we're down two runs. And, you know, I don't know where we put up three and uh, Chapman comes in and shuts the door down and, you know, we're, we're celebrating moving on. And so now we're going to the championship series. We're against the Dodgers. I think we split possibly the first two games. I'm, I'm, I think we split the first two at our place. And then there's an off day going into game three because we have to travel out to Los Angeles. So the team travels out to Los Angeles on the off day. And then I'm going to Dallas for my doctor's checkup. So what we would do beforehand is that we were always, our, our trainers would type type of questions. And at the end of the questions, they let me see, they're like, do you want to add anything? And so at the end of it, I just put World Series with a question mark, jokingly, like just kind of get a laugh out of the doctor. So we go there and doctor starts doing all the stability tests and everything like that. He goes, wow, you, you've done a, a really good job of your rehab, you know, big kudos to yourself. And, to your training staff who has helped you all along the way. And he didn't even look at the paper. He said, you know what? I wouldn't be opposed to you. You know, I know what you guys got going on with the world series coming up here. If you guys won the championship series against the Dodgers, I wouldn't be opposed to you pinch hitting or 
something in that range. And I was jumped off the table. I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> you know, I, in my whole mind, I was expecting winter ball. All of a sudden he tells me, you know what, there might be a spot for the world series. And I'm ecstatic. I'm like, we got to leave here. We got to go to uh, Los Angeles. I got to talk to Joe and I got to talk to Theo and I got to try to get, get some swings in and go to Arizona or whatever it is to try to get ready. And, uh, Matt Johnson, he's our trainer. He was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Just calm down, buddy. Just calm down. You know, we got to fight to LA. We got to run this through the head trainer first, and then sure, Theo will give you a call. So I'm, I'm just sitting there with my phone in my hand waiting for a phone call before a flight takes off. And Theo texts me and he goes, hey, I heard the news. We'll sit down tomorrow and talk and figure out a plan. So that night we flew into LA. I think we got in around eight o'clock at night, nine o'clock at night. And then we went straight to Dodger Stadium. It was me, Tim Buster, strength coach, Matt Johnson, Brian Mertz, PJ Mainville. And I took my first swings pretty much in Dodger Stadium at like nine o'clock at night. <laughs> and it felt like it never left, which was amazing. And so I'm like, man, I feel really good. So they only wanted me to pee. And uh, we, we went all the way to Tim Butts throwing me overhand live uh, BP. And, I mean, I was excited. So that next day comes, and they're like, okay, what we're going to try to do here is we're going to try to get you in the fall league. Like, this hasn't been done before, so we're going to try to figure out a way to get you in there. And so for people that don't know, the Arizona Fall League is for my league prospects. It gets them kind of a little bit more showcase, gets them more bats, to get them ready to see if they're going to be taking that next step and do a major league camp and things like that. It just puts them up against the highest of the highest competition in the minor leagues. So I was able to sneak in there. And they were like, okay, so what you're going to do is you're going to watch a little bit of game three, and then we're going to fly out to Arizona. I was like, really? All right. I flew out in like mid-game of game three and got some sleep, and then it was game four the next day. And so I went to the field early in Arizona at our spring training facility, and I'm like ready to go, ready to go just take a million swings. And our training staff's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, you're going to blow out your obliques. You're going to blow out something trying to take all these swings. You know, we got to limit you. I'm like, you know, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? You know, I'm going to get hurt again. I got the whole offseason to get ready. So we had to come up with a compromise there on what we were going to do. So what I would do is I would do my routine, my hitting routine, and I would hop off the machine and take some swings off the machine. Then they would stop me. And I'd be like, okay, so what I want to do is I just want you to feed the pitching machine. I'm just going to stand there, and I'm going to tell you if it's a ball or a strike. And I want someone behind me telling me if that was on the plate or off the plate. So I was just trying to regain my strike zone recognition just from standing in off the machine. I think that the next day was a game. <laughs> I go into this game and I feel pretty comfortable in the box. So I roll over a couple of times, but I took a couple of walks. And the next day, I think it was an off day. And so I faced some of our minor league pitchers that were at our complex. Hit a couple of balls good, but I think then there was another game and it was game six of the championship series. And all you could focus on is this iPad in the dugout of a live stream of us playing the, the Dodgers and we're winning, you know, five, nothing or whatever it is. I wasn't even focused about my bats. I'm just focused on the team seeing if they're going to make it the world series or not. And I see the, the last out and I'm going nuts in the dugout. Everyone's kind of looking at me crazy. I'm like, we just won it. We're going to the world series. So I finish up my, my game there. And after the game, I go back into the clubhouse and some of the, the strength coaches there, Ryan Klaus and, and uh, some of the other staff and scouts that were there watching me uh, had some champagne ready. And we got our own little champagne shower and celebrate going to the world series. So, the team after that, I think after they won game six, it was going to be a, an off day. And then they had the workout the next day. So they go to Cleveland and uh, they work out the following day, game one. So mm -hmm. I got one more game leading up to that workout day uh, in Cleveland. So they're in Cleveland. I'm in Arizona. I got to play a game. Theo texts me before the game. He goes, hey, shoot me a text after the game. We'll figure this out. So I go in there and I hit a double. That should have been an error during the game. And so – I'm like, you know what? I got one hit and like nine at bats, 10 at bats, whatever it was. And I'm like, they're probably not going to put me on the roster. You know, we'll see. So I texted you after the game and he, he gives me a ring. And he goes, don't tell anyone. Congratulations. You made the World Series roster. You're going to be our DH. And we got a plane waiting for you right now to get your butt up to Cleveland. I'm like, oh, man, I, and I'm bumped. I'm jumping up now. I'm calling my, my parents. I called my girlfriend, now my wife at the time. 
and uh, telling him, like, I just made the World Series roster. Get your butts up to Cleveland. Let's go. You know, so I get into Cleveland at, like, 10 o'clock that night, and I can't sleep. All these emotions are running through my mind. I'm like, this is going to be surreal. And then on top of it, game one, we were facing Corey Kluber, who I'm over five with five punch outs against. I'm like, oh, man, I got to really come up with a good game plan. I mean, talk about, like, the ultimate butterflies. I usually would go into the field around 1 o'clock, and I think I got to the field at 11.30 for this game. And uh, I'm going through all my neat stuff to get my body warm. Everyone's just welcoming me back. You know, I didn't feel like it was any different because I, everyone was ready. Everyone had this mindset of, you know what, happy to have you back, but here the help us win, so let's go. And that's that mindset I carried just throughout that whole time was, you know what, I'm here to help this team win. These guys put in all this work throughout the whole season to get here. And now if I can put, you know, just a little cherry on top of anything, I want to try to do that. Going into that first game, I mean, oh, I mean, it, it still gets me goosebumps talking about it. Just listening to the national anthem, stepping into the on-deck circle, putting on my helmet, my batting gloves, my shin guards all over again, and realizing, like, this is going to be, like, my fourth bat of the year for real, and it's in the World Series, and I'm facing Corey Kluber. I'm like, oh, man. Here we go. So, I mean, it was just an out-of-body experience. And then after that first pitch went by, I was like, oh, man, like, this is pretty normal. This is something I've done my whole life. Now, let's go. Like, I, I, I was fired up. And uh, I put in a, a pretty good at-bat that first at-bat, but I ended up punching out. And I had the, the luxury of being the DH so I could go up to the video room and look. And I saw it. I was just under his pitch. I'm like, you know what? If he throws me it again, I'm going to be on time. I'll be on top of it. And uh, I'm going to do some damage to it. And sure enough, my next at bat throws me the same exact pitch. And I get on top of it. And I hit it pretty well. I'm like, oh, man, this this might go out. This might go out. And it hits off the wall. And I hit a double. And I'm like, all right, I got this now. And the rest was just history. History it was. I'm honestly like a little bit misty hearing you tell that story. That's such an incredible story. And listeners at this point, I really have to note that during the World Series, Kyle recorded seven hits, two RBIs, and one stolen base and batted 412, even though he missed six months of the season. Hello, I hope you're enjoying the episode. Please note that the 2020 Leadership Under Fire leadership development course is still on. The LDC will take place from September 27th to October 2nd, 2020 at the farm in Western Maryland. It consists of five days and evenings of dynamic instruction, discussion, and collaboration focused on tactical leadership. The Leadership Under Fire advisory team for the event includes LUF founder, Jason Bresler, Captain Gabe and Jemmy of the Camden, New Jersey Fire Department, Lieutenant Danny Murphy of FDNY's Rescue Company 2, and more. The course also includes a staff ride of the Antietam Battlefield and a fitness and recovery session with Dr. Belisa Vranich and Jimmy Lopez. Registration is limited, so act fast. Visit leadershipunderfire.com and click on the Events tab to register. If you want to learn more about previous LDC events, tune into Episode 21, Developing Mission-Oriented Leaders with Eric Nuremberg. Kyle, the 2016 Cubs World Series victory is arguably one of the greatest stories in sport of resolve in our lifetime. After all, the team had last won in the World Series in 1908. What was it like to be part of that team? Wow. I mean, we, we had this big slogan behind us and all these, all these fans from all across the world who were all Cubs fans that were putting the weight of 108 years on us and we wanted to do this for them. I mean, I, I'm getting goosebumps again. My hair is raving. And, uh, you know, that last out was recorded and we stormed the field. I mean, it was louder in Cleveland than I think any other home game for them because everyone was cheering for us. <laughs> I mean, it was pandemonium going out there on the field. Everyone's all excited. I mean, we're jumping up and down like we're in Little League all over again talk about one heck of a party <laughs> just going back uh to chicago and 
like two, three days later, we got the parade. We're just, you know, doing our daily thing of just walking around the city, you know, getting lunch, and you can't go anywhere without getting a, a hug or a thank you or people coming up to you crying because they're they're talking about that, you know, their their dad or their grandpa that took them to games when they were growing up, talking about how the Cubs are going to win a World Series and that they weren't able to, to see it and how we were able to do it for them. And talking about how, you know, someone was, you know, on their deathbed, just watched the Cubs win and mm-hmm. saying that they could die happy now. It was just an unbelievable, I mean, amount of emotion, kindness, just like the whole city was rallied around us and how we were able to do this for them and to put them in this mindset of that everything is kind of complete now. You know, we go into the parade and that there's over 5 million people there. It's like the seventh largest gathering in the world. You're rolling through Michigan Street and downtown, and I've never seen anything like that. Just pandemonium amount of people just on light poles, on street signs, on you know, just cheering, and the whole city shut down. I mean, the whole city of Chicago shut down. And then you get to Grant Park, and you step up on stage, and you feel like you're looking out, and it's Woodstock. I mean, you can't see the end of people. And they're like, hey, they, they want you to say a few words. And I'm like, what? Like, and I get up, uh, just look out at the sea of people. I like couldn't say anything. I'm like, oh my God. Like, and luckily got it out. But it was just something that to be in our position that we were able to experience that. It's something I'm never going to forget for the rest of my life because it was just that magical. And to have, this amount of people around us believe in us and thank us. And, you know, obviously our dream as a, as a kid is to win the world series, but we, we were playing for so much more than ourselves. We were playing for a city. We were playing for someone's kids. We were playing for them. We were playing for the grand, their parents. We were playing for the grandparents. You know, it was, it was an unbelievable feeling to be at that parade. And, you know, even still now to this day, everyone comes up and thanks you for 2016 and we're hungry for more. I'm sure. And I'm interested to know, are there any lessons to be gleaned about leadership or team cohesion from that season? Yes, definitely. You know, I think without the the leadership that we had throughout our players, that wouldn't have been possible. You know, I think that we had this precedent stepping in from day one. Because after, you know, 2015, we just shocked the world a little bit. You know, no one expected us to make the playoffs. We make it to the playoffs and we go to the National League Championship Series against the Mets, and we're four wins away from going to the World Series. You know, we get swept, and everyone's hungry. Everyone's ready to go. We bring in these additions, and we all, you know, our veteran leadership in there held everyone to a high standard of how we were going to go about our business. You know, we're going to take care of business, but we're also going to have fun doing it. Also, coming from Joe, too, you know, Joe Madden, the manager, I mean, he was the perfect guy to lead this team, and, uh, set us forward going towards our goal towards world series championship because he just let us be us you know the players were gonna take care of the business and he's gonna make the lineup and you're gonna go out there and play you know so it all came down to the players speaking just uh, from david ross who's actually our manager now you know i think that was the key part to our team was he was the guy he was gonna rip you if he needed to rip you he was gonna pat you on the butt if he was needed to pat you on the butt and he was going to give you some love if you needed love. But uh, he wasn't afraid to give out tough love. And he knew how to approach every single person on our team and how to get the best out of them. I think that having him now as their manager is only going to boost us going into this next season. But having him in that leadership role as a player, I mean, it was, it was un- unheard of. And I think that's why everyone in Chicago loves him now because they saw – what he did for us on the field, how he pushed everyone to be everyone to be better and to get the best out of them on the field and off the field. I'd like to spend a few more minutes exploring leadership. What are the traits and attributes that you value most in coaches? For me and coaches, I think the biggest thing is a connection. You know, I think that's the biggest thing that you can do. You know, you, you want to be able to have a relationship to where, you know what, you're going to show this guy some love when you just show him some love, but you also got to have tough conversations with him and shoot it straight. And I think the relationship part, especially in the business that we're in, you know, the talent's there. We're the best at what we do. And our coaches here are 
here to help us facilitate all of our needs. Just from the hitting side, I can talk of. You know what? Like we go into spring training, we sit down with our hitting coach one on one. We tell him this is what we worked on, and this is my goals, and I want you to help me stay on this track. And if I start veering off from this track, pull me back on track. Sit me down and let's have the same conversation that we had, and you remind me what I said. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, because you know what? This game is. It's a crazy game. Uh, like I said, there's tons of ups and downs. You can come in with a perfect mindset, and then when you go 0 for 20, you don't know what your hands are doing on the bat. You're trying to figure out what's the best hand position, and you just got done having a great spring and a great off season, and you do exactly what you're going to work on, and now just because this 0 for 10 came, you don't know what you're doing anymore. That's what I really love in coaches is having them to have these conversations with you and have them really listen to us because you know what like our minds go everywhere during a season you know we got to focus on offense defense what's going on at home you know things like that we want to get the best out of ourselves and if a coach can be able to pull us back on course and have that the relationship with us to where we can trust that guy knowing that he has your best interest you know that's the only thing that I can look for in a coach because I'll have the ultimate respect knowing that they're all in with me and they want to get the best out of me, even if it means having a tough conversation with me. You just reminded me when we had MLB hitting coach, Anthony Iaposi on the podcast last year, he said that he thought of himself as an accountability coach, which sounds about right. Yeah. Well, that's our hitting coach. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's one that I have the ultimate amount of respect for. I mean, I, I came in the organization and Post was our minor league hitting coordinator. So when I got drafted, and I got a funny story about Post, and I think he'll love this if he'll listen to this. But uh, mm-hmm. so my, we're in Beloit, Iowa. I think Beloit's in Iowa. Either Beloit, Iowa, or Beloit, Wisconsin, one of the two. But um, I'm hitting in the cage. I'm fresh, uh, drafted, just got caught up to A ball. And I'm hitting in the cage, and I see this guy with baggy pants pulled up to, you know, he's wearing high socks, baggy pants, kind of hat turned uh, to the side a little bit. And I'm like, who's, and I'm hitting, and he's just sitting there watching. And I go up to one of our players and go, who's this guy watching us? And he goes, oh, that's our hitting coordinator, uh, Anthony Iposi. I'm like, oh, man, I cannot wait to meet this guy. And, you know, I'm like getting myself already. Like, what am I going to say to this guy? I go up to him. I shake his hand. I go, hey, I'm Kyle Schwarber. I, you know, I just got drafted. I'm really excited to be here and excited to work with you. And, and he just hits me with a sup. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, and he just walks off just walked off i'm like oh my goodness like this guy just hates me i'm like this guy hates me and i go in the game i hit two home runs i hit a homer to left left center then i hit a grand slam the right he doesn't say a word to me just gives me a high five like man this guy just really doesn't like me and i remember that same year i got called up to high a in uh, daytona florida (laughs) i think i had like the worst base running mistake in my life i was on third base and base were loaded two outs and I'm like, I'm going to be aggressive in a ball in the dirt. I got to score. I want to tie this game up. So, well, you know, sure, sure enough, catcher goes to block it. And it looks like it kicks off him, like, to the right. It's going to go to the backstop. So, I just bury my head, and I just take off for home. And I probably look up, and I probably got about 10 feet to home plate, and the catcher's just standing there. I'm like, what's this guy doing? He's got the ball in his hand. And I just stop, and I'm like, just tag me. I'm out. So I'm mad. I'm all flustered. Everyone's looking at me like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like the manager's looking at me like all disgusted. And I go in and I look at Post. And Post is like trying not to make eye contact with me just because he didn't want to die laughing. And I made him look at me. I go, what? And he just starts breaking out laughing. He's just dying laughing. I'm like, you know what? I really like this guy. (laughs) And uh, we (laughs) – we, we had a great relationship. He actually moved on to Texas to be their, their uh, head hitting coach mm-hmm. in uh, 2015. And uh, we, we kept in contact. And then for him to be able to come back this past year and be our hitting coach, I mean, can ask for a greater guy. who And he's exactly what I talked about. I wanted a coach to where he's there to keep you accountable to your own standards. And he's there to keep, keep you accountable to – our group standards as well as what we set to as our offensive side. These are our goals. We come up with goals every year for offensive side. He's there to keep you accountable to uh, your goals and your team goals as well. Absolutely. 
And I, I really appreciate that story. I want to turn to teammates, uh, particularly those who are veterans or have had a lot of influence on a club. What are the traits and attributes that you value most in a veteran teammate? You know, I, I think the perfect one to look at, like I said, was David Ross. You know, for me personally, and I know for a lot of other guys on our team right now, and I, I can speak my, for myself personally, I was coming up as a catcher and David was uh, a catcher. You know, he, he's been through the ringer. You know, I think it was 15 seasons. You know, it was his last year. And I come up fresh. Miguel Montero goes down. And this is like the story that sticks in my head. We were playing the Giants in 2015, and we're up three. And it's like the seventh inning. Brandon Crawford comes up, and we got a guy on first base, one, one or two outs, two outs. And I was trying to play to the scoreboard. And I remember in the report at the time, it was like you could either throw him a breaking ball or you could throw a fastball down the way. And they are like, you know what? The breaking ball is your best pitch to go to this guy at the time. You know, I got a guy out there throwing 99 on the mound, and he wasn't really getting over his breaking ball at the time. And it's a 3-2 count, and Buster Posey wasn't playing that day. If we walked a guy – Buster Posey could have easily came up in that in that next spot. So I was like, you know what, we're gonna go ahead and challenge this guy with the fastball down and away. We didn't execute the pitch and he hits a home run, puts him within one, and uh we get out of the inning and I just come in the dugout and I got bad body language. I mean, I was questioning myself, I was disappointed in myself. I felt like I let the the pitcher down out there because I felt like I called the wrong pitch at the time. <laughs> he he's sitting up on on a like the top step and he sees me. And he just burns me in front of everyone. He goes, Schwarber, he goes, what, what are you looking like that? What are you looking like that for? Everyone's looking at you right now. You're the catcher. You're the captain. Everyone's looking at your body language, and you're looking like that? He goes, you better pick your uh, explicit crap up. <laughs> and uh, you know what? We're looking at the scoreboard. What's it say? We're still winning. We're still winning. Now, you go back there. You better act like we're we're bleeping winning and, uh, and, and, lead, and lead your pitches to a win. I'm like, uh, yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And uh, you know what? Like, I mean, it, it was true because you know what? Like at the end of the day, you know, the, in my mind, and I think in every other catcher's mind, you know what? We're the, we're kind of like the captain on the field. We get to see everything in front of us. Everyone else is mm-hmm. looking at you and the batter and you get to see everything else. And I'm, if I'm back there and I'm hanging my head, I'm throwing a fit, you know, what's, what's it going to look like for everyone else to? It's going to bring them down. And mm-hmm. I, I knew that I needed to keep my, my poise and my posture, my composure, because, you know what, we were still, we were, we're still winning one. And even if we did go down by a runner or two runs, you know, if I have that bad body language, what's it going to show to everyone else going into their bats that next inning that, man, we're defeated, we're done. You know, I needed to, to have this poise to myself to know that everyone's looking at me and I need to be the leader of this team and show them that, you know, even if we are down or if it's one one game, wandering game, that everything's all right. We still need to go about our business and put some more runs up on the board for these pitchers coming in, knowing that we're going to execute the right pitches and get these guys out and win the game. That's great. And I know we're running out of time, but I do have a few more important questions that I wanted to go over with you. So I'll try to get through them quickly. On the topic of leadership and more specifically mental performance, you had the opportunity to work with Dr. Ken Revisa, a Cal State Fullerton professor who was among the leading sports psychologists in the nation and was on the Cubs coaching staff until his sudden death in 2018. He is perhaps the godfather of sports psychology and baseball. So how did Ken impact you as a player and as a person? Man, you know what? Uh, <laughs> the, 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 the man, Kenny's the man. I, I think we were all shocked when we heard the news that he suddenly passed because we just saw him five days beforehand in L.A. You know, the, the one thing that stuck with us and Kenny was the way that he would go up to everyone and just Kenny was one of kind. He had his own kind of voice, and he'd just be like, "Hey, man, what's going on, man? How you doing? Are you taking Are you taking a dump in the box, man? Or are you taking a dump out of the box? And you're going to go in there with a the clear head, man? You're like, oh. you know, those were the things that you loved about Kenny. He was just one of a kind, 
And, uh, and I, I mean, I have another, another great story about Kenny, um, you know, 2017 or actually in LA, I'm having like the worst year ever. I'm hitting like 160 at the time. And uh, Kenny comes up to my hotel room and we just, we're sitting in there talking this kind of what's going on, you know, through your head on the field, off the field, everything. And we were talking about the weighing the bat, you know, the bat at bats beforehand and, you know, umpires making bad calls, whatever it is. And he goes, Schwab, stand up, stand up. So I stand up and sure enough, Kenny jumps on my back. Like I'm giving him a piggyback ride. He goes, no, 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 go in the box and try to hit. Try to hit. So he goes, take a swing, take a swing. So I try to take a swing and he's on my back. And I mean, I'm like, what's going on here? And he goes, do you feel that? Do you feel that? And I go, yeah, I can. Like, you're on my back. Like, I can't swing. He goes, well, that's exactly what's going on. Every time you think about every other at bat, every other at bat beforehand that was negative, if the umpire screwed you over, anything like that, that's what it's going to do to you. It's only going to pull you down. You can't think about that stuff. And, you know, it was a, it was a funny story at the time. And one of the most positive lessons I ever think I had with him to where, you know, you can't think about that past. You can't think about anything in the past in this game. You can relive a little bit of good, but you can only focus on what's in the moment. You can only control what you can control. So you can prepare as well as you want to. You can go in there and take the best batting practice in the world, and you can feel sexy rolling into the game. And then when you step in the box, and you know what, you can hit a ball as hard as you can, and you can still get out. The only thing that you can prepare is in your head, your, your preparation before the game, and your swing to the ball. Because once the ball comes off your bat, there's nothing you can do about it anymore. There's, there's nothing you can do. You could hit a 110-mile-hour line drive right at the second baseman, and you're out. Or you can get jammed, loop it right over the third baseman's head and hit a double. You know, nothing's ever going to be perfect. But you want to have a clear mindset rolling into that box and not holding anything down beforehand, focus on the moment and focus on everything that we can control. I think that speaks volumes, especially with the time that we're living in right now. And as we begin to wind down, my final two questions, Kyle, it's late April of 2020 and there is no Major League Baseball at present due to the coronavirus. There's also no NBA or NHL and March Madness was canceled. This chapter in U.S. history is unique because for the first time, we don't have sports. There was a brief period after 9-11 where baseball was suspended, but nothing on this scale. I know that so many people cannot wait for baseball to return. And my next question is somewhat of a philosophical question, but why do you think so many people miss baseball so much? Uh, Well... I mean, I can speak for myself. It's my profession. I love my job, <laughs> but uh, I mean, for, for, but for for myself, uh, just speaking on, I mean, even in terms of you know, just being able, being a fan of baseball and being a fan of sports in general, I feel like it's a good getaway. It doesn't matter what your day can be like. It, you know, it could be a bad day at work. It could be, uh, you know, you had a great day at work or you know what, you, you got in an argument with your, with your spouse or whatever it is. It's a way for everyone. You can either flip on that television and lose yourself for four hours in a baseball game and just really root for your team or whatever it is. And going to the games, you know, those are some of the best memories I have as a kid, even in high school and things like that. Going to the games with my dad, going to games with my friends, being able to sit in the, the cheap seats up at the very top of the stadium and, and watching the, the, you know, for me, I was I was a Reds fan growing up since I grew I grew up in Cincinnati. Being able to watch King Griffey Jr. hit home run, being able to watch Barry Larkin make sick plays in the hole, you know, just being able to have those memories and be able to escape, I guess, reality for four hours out of the day, to, to sit down and enjoy a sport and watch grown men go hit a, a moving ball and run around some bases in a circle and see some guys go catch a ball. I think it's just something that, you know, sports in general, it's just a way for us to uh, release and sit down and give us all something as a community to cheer about and get behind. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. 
And Kyle, much of the Leadership Under Fire podcast audience is comprised of first responders. And I know that you're very passionate about supporting first responders. You mentioned your father was a police officer. I was wondering, you know, are there any words of wisdom or encouragement that you have for those on the front line right now? I, I just want to send out my thank you to you guys. I mean, Shorebridge Neighborhood Heroes was uh, started after the 2016 season, after we won the World Series. So for me personally, I grew up in a family of uh, first responders and public service members. Uh, my dad was a policeman for 30 plus years. Uh, I think it was about 38, 39 years. He retired once I graduated high school. Uh, my mom, he actually met my mom. My mom was a police dispatcher at the time. Uh, that's where they met, at the police department. And uh, then she actually went on to become a nurse. She worked her butt off and she went back to college actually when I was in high school. Got her, uh, got her degree to uh, be able to keep moving up in her, in her uh, line of work. My sister, uh, Lindsay, who's the closest one to me, she joined the uh, National Guard right out of high school. She served for six years, and then uh, she came back and she wanted to be a policeman. She actually now works where my dad used to work at, Middletown Police Department. She's a canine handler right now. She's doing great things out there right now, uh, you know, keeping the community safe. And uh, actually, her boyfriend as well works at the Middletown Police Department, Tony, and uh, he's a canine handler as well. So uh, it's kind of rare to have two canine handlers in the same household, but it just tells you about the work that the, uh, they put into their craft. My uncle served up near Cleveland in Shaker Heights. He had a 30-plus year career. Uh, his son served as Army Ranger, and uh, another cousin of mine, Matthew, uh, was in the National Guard. So I kind of came through that family of service. And uh, I do coming up through high school that, you know what, like if this baseball thing doesn't work out, uh, I think I know what I want to go do. You know, it's either going to be, you know, police, fire, military, one of those three. You know, luckily the baseball thing worked out for me. I thought I got this platform to show the good of what's going on the world of police, fire, military. And uh, I want to be able to, to do that for these uh, men and women because, you know what, I, I lived through it. I was a child of one and uh, a, a brother of one you know they're showing up to everyone's worst day the things that they they all see is something that you know i i have a lot of respect for because you know they have to go there it's their line of work and then they're coming back home the family i feel like the more good that we can just spread about what these men and women do and try to improve the quality of lives for these individuals and try to help them out you know trying to just provide a little vacation for them down in uh uh, a golf tournament or uh, whatever it is, bring them out to Wrigley Field, make some surprise visits around the uh, Chicago area or uh, whatever it is, stop in at the VA just to say hello and drop some things off. We just try to put smiles on faces and try to improve the quality of lives for all these individuals. I think to this date, uh, we've raised almost over a million dollars. We're really excited about what we've been doing and uh, it all comes back from my background. We put on a a charity event every year. It's a really proud moment for me because I get to sit back and get to introduce my, my dad and my sister and Tony, and I get to watch them put on a dog demonstration every year. <laughs> and it's really cool just to see everyone's reaction to seeing my family up there putting on this demonstration for everyone to, to see how the, the dogs are going about business and how you know my sister and the, my, my dad and uh, Tony are going out there protecting uh, everyone's lives every day. And uh, being able to go around with some ride-alongs in Chicago and sit down and really d dive in deep uh, with uh, individuals who are out there, or individuals who have lost a loved one uh, on the lines. And it, it just puts everything into perspective. And, you know, that's why I have such an immense amount of respect for all the men and women who go out there and put their lives on the line every day just to make sure that we get to do what we want to do every day. So uh, that's why I got a huge amount of respect and that's why we started this charity and uh, for everyone out there on the front lines right now I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart and my uh, wife's heart and my family's heart you know these, these are ideal times but uh, we hope everyone's out there staying safe and making sure that uh, everyone's doing what they need to do to uh, make sure that we can all get back to uh, doing what we love uh, mm -hmm. thank you guys for always putting your guys uh uh, some second behind our community and behind your families to make sure that we all stay safe. So thank you all very much. Kyle, thank you for taking the time today to speak with me. And I think you shared a lot of insights that people, no matter what walk of life you're from or what your profession is, you know, a lot of transferable lessons learned. So thank you for being very generous with that. 
Well, thank you guys very much. You know, I'm not the best with words, but uh, I try to uh, share my experiences uh, the best I can. Just being able to learn every day, I think, is the biggest thing. And, uh, you know, be able to learn from baseball and the men and women out there uh, who are putting their lives online every day is a big thing for me. So thank yeah. you guys again for having me on. Definitely. Thank you for tuning into the episode. I'm excited to share with you that the Leadership Under Fire book club is back by popular demand. A careful examination of history's most accomplished leaders reveals that their success was strongly correlated to a scholarly appreciation for literature, reading, and reflection. Upon its formal inception in 2012, the Leadership Under Fire team launched a recommended reading list in subsequent years, many leaders in the LUF network have been inspired to form book clubs in their organizations, units, and teams. We're hopeful that this practice continues and thought it appropriate to canvas our LUF advisors for a few of their personal recommended reads. You can view this by visiting leadershipunderfire.com and clicking on book club in the menu. Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at conwayshield.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.